0: Psalm 103, Uh, before I went on sabbatical, I was looking at 1 Thessalonians and it is my intent uh, in January uh, to pick up with 2 Thessalonians. But this week uh, and next week we'll be looking at some psalms and then a a passage um, for Christmas Eve. Uh, And then in January, my my intent is to return to 2 Thessalonians. Um, Psalm 103, I think is familiar to many of us. Uh, dear to many of us, uh, and it is a beautiful psalm, and so I invite you uh, to uh, give your full attention to this God's Word, because God's Word, uh, it abides forever. It is eternal, and it is perfect, and it knows us better than we know ourselves, and comforts us in our greatest need. So let us hear uh, Psalm 103 of David. to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a, a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. It is our, our guide through this dark world. It is wisdom and truth that we follow each day. Your word is sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. It's healing and it is justice and it is ours to obey. Your word is our very understanding of grace and peace and love. And this is the reason why we draw near to it. So that we might know you and all your benefits. So speak to us, we ask, through your scriptures. Amen. You may be seated. There's a very real danger. It's one I personally know all too well. And it's this. It's simply this. It's, it's to forget who we are and who God is. Uh, when it comes to ourselves, we like to think of ourselves more capable than we really are. That, that we have something to offer to God, or at least we, we could have something uh, to offer Him if we would just try really, really hard. And so we do that. We try, and we try, and we try. But then we struggle, and we, we falter, and the best that we have, the absolute best we can come up with doesn't produce the amazing results that we thought it would. The, the results that we counted on, that we believed would prove to God just how valuable we are. And as we, as we get older, and as we get weaker, things just get harder. And when all this happens, we, I can think that those struggles, those shortcomings, the, those unrealized expectations, the very things that we thought would prove our, our worth to God, that would bring us close to God, now that they are unmet and unrealized, we think that they, they somehow stand between us and God. That, that those unaccomplished ambitions, far from being an aid To our God and His kingdom, because they are unrealized, have now become a hindrance to Him, to His plans, to His kingdom, to His reign, and to His rule. And that's what happens when we forget who we are. And that inevitably leads to forgetting who God is. Rather than believing that he is the gracious father, the forgiving savior, the the patient redeemer that we read about in scripture, we think that he is just a disappointed, angry stranger who wants nothing to do with us. But, and this is what I want to drive home today. The reality is our frailty is not a hindrance to God showing us mercy. It is the very reason he shows us mercy. Our frailty, our weakness, our struggles and our sin are not a hindrance to our God showing us kindness. They're the very reason he does. That's that's what Psalm 103 drives home for us. and, and that's what we want to see—that it's because we are weak that he shows us mercy. It, it's, and and this is something we must come to expect and even embrace, because when we do, we'll find out that that our our, our greatest weakness becomes our greatest asset and our greatest blessing. That's what we want to see, and as we do, I, I want to begin this morning at the center, at verse 14. For God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Uh, It's funny, but I think dust might be one of the scariest words in the Bible. (laughs) Look at how the psalm goes on to explain what it means to be dust in verses 15 and 16. As for a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone And its place knows it no more. When it says that we're dust, what it's talking about is our our temporariness. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's the best I could come up with. That that we're here for a little while, and then we're gone, and then we're forgotten. We're We're known no more. We're remembered no more. That's what it means to be dust. And and our relationship with dust starts really early in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, right there at the beginning it says, And then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. That's where our relationship with dust starts. Uh, God didn't create us out of nothing. He used something that he had already created, something that existed before we did, the dust of the ground. And and he brought us out of that dust. In fact, the the Bible calls Adam the man of dust. We are people of dust. And that's not a bad thing because it wasn't meant to be the end of our story. It was just the beginning. Uh, Adam was created for glory. He He was created for heaven. Had he obeyed, had he done what God required, he would have been transformed and given a glory, the likes of which we have yet to see. And he would have been welcomed into heaven. But he didn't obey. And this is where uh, the story of dust takes a tragic turn. It it plays, dust plays a, a prominent role... In God's curses, when Adam and Eve took and ate of that forbidden fruit, which they had been forbidden to take, Uh, first, our, our God says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. That's a curse. But then more terrifying, at least for us, was what he said to Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread... Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so no longer was was dust just the beginning of our story. It became the end as well. Rather than achieving that that, that glory... We would return to the ground from which we were taken and decay and once again become dust. And the time between uh, today and that day would be known for futility, sweat, and labor, and toil, just, just eking out an existence, nothing extra, nothing lasting, destined to repeat tomorrow what you did today. And so dust came to define our future and our inability to do anything about it. We can't work our way to heaven. We we can't save ourselves. We can't fix what we broke. And so, so dust becomes synonymous with futility and hopelessness and transience. And then just to make sure we didn't forget As as the Lord removed Adam and Eve out of the garden, he stationed these angels with flaming swords at its entrance so that we couldn't get back in and take of the tree of life and live forever. And so those terrifying messengers of judgment, those angels made any who approached cower in fear and remember we are dust and to dust we shall return. And that's what scares us. That's why I think dust is one of the scariest words in the Bible because of what it represents. We fear returning to dust. But what we really fear, I think more than that, is, is being forgotten. And so we spend our lives trying to prepare for death without being forgotten. Uh, We want to overcome our dustness. We want to conquer it. And so we think if we just learn the right trick, that we'll no longer be dust and, and we'll live forever, if not in the flesh, at least in the memories of men. And that's why doing something unforgettable is called being immortalized so that your memory doesn't die with you. And so we try to do something, build something, say something that will never be forgotten so that we aren't forgotten. Whether it's our career, our family, our children, our education, our activism, or our excellence in sports, or or music, or or art, or something else. We look for for immortality in, in what we can do, what we can achieve, so we can leave our mark, prove our worth, justify our existence, And so we set our affections and our loyalties and ultimately our worship on anything that offers us a sense of of transcendence and immortality. Anything we think can make us feel like we're more than dust. Anything that we think will give us meaning and identity. And so what is it that drives this? What, what is it that, that drives this ambition, this passion to do something? What compels us to throw ourselves, our time, and our resources into not being forgotten? What makes us race the clock to create something that we think will be lasting and eternal and prove that our lives mattered? If I can be uh, blunt, it's not God's glory, it's ours. We think that the way to achieve glory is through the praise and the approval of our fellow man. We can be creative, we can even uh, make uh, it sound holy. Through trying to build something like a church or a religious movement. But still want to be the one who did it and is remembered for doing it. So that we're not forgotten. And so we are easily sucked in by leaders who offer us a way to build our legacy but but call it religious service. But eventually we start to realize that we'll never produce what we thought we would. Uh, We realize that God wasn't kidding when he said that we will spend our lives toiling and then return to the dust from which we came. And that the wind will pass over us and our place will be known no more. At some point in life, each of us has to come to accept that we really are dust and there isn't one thing we can do to change it. I would even go so far as to say that all of our running from God, all of our rebellion, all of our refusal to worship Him, comes down to really what we know deep down inside of us, that we are not just dust, but that we are sinful dust, and that we are naked, and we are exposed before a holy God who is righteous and just in all he does, and that terrifies us. And so we run, we hide, and we actually want God... To just forget about us and in what we are and, and, and just how helpless we are to do anything about it. And so in verse 14 when it tells us that he knows exactly what we are and that he remembers it well, it's terrifying. And yet that's exactly what our psalm tells us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That we can't hide our sinful condition from him. He knows it all. He knows it even better than we do. But, and this is is beautiful. When the Bible says that God remembers, it doesn't mean that he forgot and suddenly remembered. It means he's about to act and he's about to show kindness. Think about Genesis 30. The Lord God remembered Rachel... And she conceived. And she had a child. Or or Exodus 2. God remembered Israel. And that's when he led them out of slavery in Egypt. When Psalm 103 tells us that God remembers, this isn't meant to scare us. This isn't meant to, it's not a psalm of despair. It's an answer to our hopelessness. Look at verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, forget not all his benefits. God wants you to remember something. All the benefits that belong to those who place their hope, not in what they accomplish, but in what God has already accomplished for us. Verse 3, that's forgiveness and healing. Verse 4, it's redemption and glory. Verse 5, it's satisfaction and strength. See, God's going right at the problem. The very reason we return to dust, it's our sin and our rebellion against Him. Our hope is not in what we produce, what we make or our hope is not in whether or not we achieve an unforgettable status our hope is that the lord would not deal with us according to our sins that he would forgive us our hope is that he would buy us back from slavery to sin our hope is that he would heal us the solution uh, to being dust isn't anything that we can accomplish And so this is where the story of dust in the Bible takes an incredible turn. It's it's part of our beginning and in Adam it's our destination, but that's not its whole story. I I mentioned at the beginning that Adam was called the man of dust. In other words, while we are made in God's image, the dust wasn't part of that image. It was something that was supposed to be transformed into glory before we entered into heaven. Or or if I can put it this way, there's nothing dusty about God. Dust is a created thing. Dust is an earthly thing. Dust is an Adam thing. But... In order to forgive us, in order to heal us, and to redeem us, to satisfy us, to renew us, and to crown us with his glory, God himself would have to take on dust, become dust, so that he could endure the, cr- the curse that we deserved in our place. And that's why Jesus became man. That's why he was born a descendant of Adam. He united himself to our reality of dust in order to rescue us from it. And so he was born in a human body, one that could get sick, one that could age, one that could die. And in that body he suffered even allowing him to suffer death in our place. But he didn't see decay. He, he didn't turn to dust in the grave. Because he had lived a perfect life, because he willingly gave himself for us, he conquered the curse. And he has now taken on a glory far beyond what Adam possessed in the garden. And so just as you bore the image of the man of dust, if you place your hope in Jesus Christ, you will bear the image of the man of glory and become like him. Incorruptible. Undecayable. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. That was his life's mission. Think about it this way. When, When Jesus left this world... What was the the state of the world? Well, the church was small. It was ignored and even persecuted. Uh, Poverty was still around. Corruption still proliferated businesses and governments. Sickness still plagued man. And sorrow still stung families. And yet, even with all that true, Jesus' mission was an absolute success so that he could say it was finished. That he accomplished what he came to do. And he can say that because souls were saved. Because forgiveness was accomplished. Because redemption was paid for. Because that's what he came to do. That's why he became dust. It was was to rescue us, to save us, and to give us true immortality. And all of this he did because he knows we are dust. He he did this because he knew our need and that we couldn't do it for ourselves. So ironically, the very thing we try to hide from God... Is what we most need him to know. Or let me put it this way the last thing you ever want to do is convince God that you don't need his help, that you've got it covered. So why do I always try to do it? Our frailty isn't a hindrance to God showing us mercy. It's the very reason he shows us mercy. And so it's something that we must come to accept and even embrace. You can even hear it, can't you, in Joshua's confession uh, in God's presence in Joshua 7. Perhaps you remember uh, what, what that, uh, we read there. It says, Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. And he and the elders... And they put dust on their heads. In placing dust on their heads, they were confessing that they were in need of rescue. That that's all they were and all they were headed towards without God's intervention. And we need to do the same. Because when we do, we find that our greatest weakness becomes our greatest blessing. Because it brings us to the one whose steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. And so in Jesus, dust begins to take on a new meaning in the scriptures. Something actually positive. What what was once a curse now becomes a blessing. And so when God promised salvation to Abraham and all his descendants, do you remember what he said? He says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. What was once terrifying now becomes this image of blessing and immortality. No longer is this word a scary reminder of the curse. It's this wonderful picture of God's salvation. And one of the places in our passage where this becomes most clear, the blessing that comes with this is verse 20. Where where David says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels. It's easy to to miss how profound that is. But think about what we did in our sin. We cower before angels. But in redemption, having been united to Jesus Christ, we are, according to 1 Corinthians 6, given a glory that exceeds theirs. And so this is what's going on with King David. Uh, This is what he's referring to when he talks about God and his love and his mercy giving us a crown in verse 4. The crown is an emblem of God's glory that he shares with us. And so David understands this and so he steps out and rather than cowering before the angels, he commands them. To praise God for all he is and all he has done. Because David understands that in God's grace he is not defined by dust, by sin, his shame or his inability to accomplish anything more. He is now defined by his Savior and all that his Savior has done. And out of that he commands angels to praise God for his mercy, his grace and his love. But it's not just the angels that we need to talk to and remind to praise God. We need to talk to ourselves and remind ourselves. A good friend of mine recently told me that I need to stop listening to myself and start talking to myself. And he brought me to Psalm 103. Because he knew that the voices in my own head weren't being helpful. They were feeding my fears and my doubts, and they were silencing God's grace. And so he took me to Psalm 103, and he, and he told me that it was time to start confronting those voices with God's truth. That's where the psalm starts with David talking to himself. "Praise the Lord, O oh my soul, He's talking to himself. Remember who he is and what he has done. That that his grace and not your frailty defines you. That's what David's telling himself. Because he knows that, that he's going to forget. And so he's confronting his own misdirected fears. Because when you fear being forgotten or you fear growing weak, when you fear returning to dust... When you do those things, you give your praise and your loyalty to anything or anyone who you think can help you be remembered. And so it's no surprise that that our psalm three times tells us that rightly placed fear is when when it's fear of God. In other words, it's just simply acknowledging that God is greater than anything he created and he is even greater than death. That he alone can give immortality. That he alone can conquer the dust. And so he alone is worthy of your praise. But our talking to ourselves isn't just uh, private, individual. It's corporate. I, I, I... I wonder if you've noticed that David isn't just speaking about himself as an individual. Verse 14, for he himself knows our frame, plural. Uh, Verse 6, he cares for all who are oppressed, that's a plural. He acts for all his people, verse 7. Or verses 10 through 13, over and over again, he deals with us according to his steadfast love and mercy. We need to remind each other where our hope and our comfort is. That our identity is not found in what we do in this life. Of course, we we should work hard and and seek to do what God has called us to do and to do it well, as Pastor Isaac reminded us uh, in his meditation on, on the Eighth Commandment this morning. But those things are not where our identity is found because we will labor and we will toil by the sweat of our brow and then we will return to dust. Our identity instead is found in who we belong to and what we will be doing for all eternity. We will be spending eternity singing his praises with all that is within us. I love how Psalm 22 says it. Our God is enthroned on our praises. Praise comes naturally to us, but not the praise of God. Left to ourselves, we will offer our praise to anything and everything but God. And so we need to start talking to ourselves. Wake up in the morning and tell ourselves, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Stand in awe of His goodness and His mercy and His love. Remember what He has done and how He has loved you, redeemed you, forgiven you, and how He crowns you with glory. Beloved, we're all returning to dust. All of us. There's no escaping it. But the more that we accept that we are dust and that God knows it, the more we will be able to recognize His love and His mercy and delight in it, bask in it, and praise Him for it. We witness that love in the meal that He sets before us now. Because in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that the man of glory became a man of dust and he took on mortal flesh and blood so that he could rescue us and offer us forgiveness. And he shed his blood in our place, that that he offered his body in our place, enduring the curse that we deserve, all so that he could give us eternal life and share his eternal glory with us. And so in coming, we confess that our hope is not in what we accomplish, but in what he has done. We confess that he is good, and he is our only hope, our only salvation. And so our coming then becomes itself an act of praise and worship. And so I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God uh, this morning. Father, you know us. You know our foolish fears, how we fear our weakness, our frailty, and we fear you knowing us, all our sin, our inability to make things right, our inability to save ourselves. We simply fear being known. But it's only in being known that we find mercy, grace, forgiveness, and redemption. It's only in Jesus Christ that we find crowns and glory. So please forgive us our foolishness, quell our fears, and teach us to find comfort in being known by you, in remembering that it's because of our weakness that you show us mercy and kindness. Help us to not forget your benefits. And in remembering, may we sing your praises with all that is within us, with all your people, indeed, with the very angels of heaven. Amen.